go. Welcome to Come and See, your podcast for finding truth in a world of chaos. Brought to you by All for Jesus Living Waters Ministry. With host and founder, Richard Case, and co-host and retreat leader, Kathy Riccone. Today is our special guest day, where we will hear from a friend of the ministry who will share their insight and stories on truth in this chaotic world. And now your host, Richard Case. Well, good morning, everybody. This is uh, Guest Thursday, and uh, we have a very special guest, uh, Denny Weinberg from uh, California, who's a uh, Messianic Jew, and uh, we're going to talk about Israel uh, quite a bit and get, get into his background and uh, things. And uh, D- and Denny, welcome. Um, you Thanks. are. You said you live in uh, no Southern California. Describe describe a little bit about where you live. So we're out in a, a county called Ventura County. We're in rural Ventura County, just outside of the city of Camarillo, and uh, we live in a big. Um, on the side of a big hillside that is now an avocado farm. Yeah, yeah. How many? Was it how an many... avocado farm when you moved in? Did, did you choose it because of that, or that happened to be? You know, it was all it was all um, what they call California chaparral, so which is just basically cactus on the side of a hill. So we we had a um, a lot cut, a one acre lot cut for our home, and I'd never been able to be see the extremes of our property because it was impossible to walk through it. So right. we created, we, we had to pull all the cactus and scrub out over. Wow. We planted all these trees and a lot of these trees are planted in solid rock. They, we had to jackhammer up volcanic rock and drop a little sapling into solid rock. And then wow. you know, we got uh, 1500 gigantic mature avocado trees. <laughs> and oh did, my goodness. Did, didn't you have um, kind of a cool thing with your uh, water system there, your wells and what, what, what happened there that you actually wound up with a good, good source of water? Well, we didn't. We actually, it's because of that, Rich, that we have this um, orchard. Allie and I were doing some missionary work in West Africa to help uh, some very, very uh, remote tribes drill for water. And so we got this, you know, appreciation for the desperate value of water. We came back and mm. sort of, you know, you know, confronted what we were aware of, which was we had all this water running off this hill behind our house onto the street, created a problem in mud, <clears throat> and uh, we would just clean it up. And then we thought, oh my gosh, you know, God has given us water. We have to do something mm-hmm. with it. And, you know, the, after some research and all, that's, that's what caused us to do this because we felt this was a command almost from God that this property was to be used for food and not, or certainly not the water was to be wasted. Mm. That's fascinating. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. So we capture about we capture about seventeen thousand gallons <clears throat> of water every day from these little French drains that that are all throughout there. It goes into a big holding tank, and we pump it back up uh, onto these trees that we've planted. And we, when it when it's not enough, we we add city water to it. But it it allows us to many for many many months of the year. It's sufficient to meet all the needs of these big trees. Yeah. Yeah. And the um... You know, when you when they pick the fruit uh, of it, um, what happened? How do they what happens to that fruit when they because they you have people that come and pick it and they put it in these big boxes. And what happens after that? Well, we cut these little uh, picking rows all the way through this hillside and they, they drop these one ton, these bins off that hold one tons, one ton of 
of avocados. They pick them manually, they drop them in there, forklifts, put them onto these trucks. And these trucks are sent out by one of the many packing companies in our area, because this is a this is a, a prominent avocado uh, source for the world, this, this county. Um, and so they take them all away. It's all graded in the bin, or it's all um, marked in the bin. So if there was anything way downstream with a problem, they could actually identify a, a, probably within 30 trees where an avocado anywhere in the world mm. came from. Wow. So that, the little labels you see on them carry that little code. That's, that's interesting. Anyway, they that's go off fascinating. There. They go into a grading process based on size and quality. And um, they're actually at that point, right on the assembly lines uh, or the, the grading lines assigned to one of the customers of this uh, produce company that they have contracts with. And based on that, where it's going to go in the world, it goes into a freshening bin that applies temperature and humidity and ethylene gas, which follows that um, bin or that that packaging for that customer onto the trucks and all the way to the to the warehouse of the store and then in front of you when you go shopping. And it's designed that that avocado you pick up in a retail store feels a certain way based on control of all of those elements. And they're really good at pulling it off. That's amazing. That's and it takes takes about 10 days for all that to happen. They're solid as a rock when mm. they come off the trees. Have really? You, have you uh, uh, ever been able to know where your avocado wound up? No. <laughs> well, I want to, though. Yeah. I, know, I know when they're picking, and we're now a big enough part of the um, uh, of the of what gets picked on a particular day, I could probably know the customer, whether it's a Kroger or whether it's a, you know, mm -hmm. a Vaughn store or Costco, I could probably know that. And I could probably tell somebody in a city, there's a good chance that if you go shopping today and buy some avocados, you know, it might be, one of them might be ours. Yeah. Yeah. yeah That's can, great. That's kind yeah, of fun. So. Yeah. And the neat thing is I've, I've had Denny's uh, and Allie's avocados are really good. And Allie uh, is really good at making guacamole. <laughs> Hey, that's the best, so, right? <laughs> so we love that guacamole because, man, is it tasty. And particularly when you make it fresh like that, it's so fantastic. <laughs> uh, well, Denny, uh, you know, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Israel, but um, uh, and you've been on the podcast before, so we've heard your story. But if you could remind everybody again of uh, a little bit about your Jewish upbringing and then um, how did you come to know Christ? So I, I grew up in the Midwest in a very typical uh, Reformed Jewish community. Um, a town that was probably 80% Jewish. The public schools were about 80% Jewish. So I was in a culturally oh, wow. Jewish world. I had no awareness of Christians. I had an awareness mm -hmm. of Catholics because there was a private Catholic school across the street. And those were the kids I stayed away from because they were big and tall and mean. <laughs> I didn't understand what a Christian was and I didn't see it. Our schools closed down on all the Jewish holidays. And that's just the world I grew up in. We had a very small local perspective. Um, the, um, uh, I, you know, I, I, because we were culturally Jewish, I didn't really have, or was not given any awareness of the, uh, of the, of who God was, that God has a purpose, that God can be known personally. There was none of that. And so it, it served, it, it provided me very little in my life and as I grew up and eventually went off to college, I just became an atheist and thought it was a bunch of nonsense. Um, I also was sort of offended by what maybe people would think of as cultural stereotypes. And I think I avoided some of that in college by just denying the fact that I was Jewish. 
where I know others, you know, when I reflect back on it and we talk about early life, they experienced real persecution because they carried their Jewish heritage proudly and they were, you know, and, and, and they suffered for it in, in college. I did. This was, no, I'm not Jewish. I'm, I don't know, Italian. What, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> Later in life, you know, I had, I experienced a lot of business success and a lot of personal um, trauma and failures. And those overtook me as I, as my life went on. And by the time I was, just before I was 40, I moved to California on business reasons. I met Allison, we married. She was a new believer. And this was offered for me the first, uh, the first observation of a Christian. I'd never, I, I, and I, and I, and, and uh, she was being mentored by this couple and I knew him well, she knew the wife well. And, you know, the result of that was that I had one of these sort of amazing Paul op, you know, opportunities to have my eyes open, to be preached the gospel in a messianic um, service that I and I didn't even really understand what that was, but my hand went up, my heart opened up, I received Christ. It was just a miracle, but a, but a miracle because it was something I, I didn't anticipate. I'd never seen it happen to anybody else. It wasn't any historic knowledge that guided me. It was purely a spirit thing. And so it was one of these stories of conversion that I only, you know, you don't hear a lot of, and it's, it's why I so relate to Paul you know, in his conversion. It's literally the kind of experience I had. Yeah. Was the, uh, was that church where John Tesh was worship guy? Or? <laughs> yeah, it was a messianic uh, church. I walk in and there's John Tesh leading worship. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And he, uh, he evidently did pretty well, didn't he? He was a good worship guy. <laughs> must be a good thing here. <laughs> uh, and so, um, you know, uh, a question uh, is, you know, you look at that, uh, and I know your dad was kind of active in the synagogue, um, did it, it sounds like families who are Jewish, even though they're active in the synagogue, didn't necessarily process what we would call the Old Testament, uh, as a, as a regular thing. And the Torah is different really than other things to describe a little bit of that, about what that looks like and what the typical, uh, particularly American Jewish person views the the scripture whatever whatever scripture they look at if if at all well the torah has a it has great both symbolic and and um religious value to jews it's very prominent when you walk into a synagogue there's an ark up in front there's a curtain you open it up there's one two or three torahs in there the mezuzah that you see on the homes of of um uh jewish families is in the shape of that scroll inside it is a scripture from deuteronomy very very old a uh, very very Torah focused. Um, you don't see Bibles when you go into a Jewish synagogue. You have a prayer book, and it basically takes you through the order of the service and you, you know, responsive reading and that kind of thing. And there's and that's what that's what you see. I didn't have an opportunity to read a Bible. I had an opportunity to learn Hebrew and to uh, you know to memorize some scriptures from uh, the Torah, but. Later in life, when I became a believer, I found a what's called a Tanakh, which is the all of the books that we know as Christians as the Old Testament. But they're groups; they're they're in three groupings: the Law, the Writings, and the Prophets. Mm -hmm. And so they're not in the same order, but the same books. And only then did I realize that all I really knew about uh, and was spoken about was the Law. And the law didn't mean Old Testament. The law literally meant 
the first five books, the books of Moses. Mm-hmm. That was. That. Mm. And the um, as you uh, you know process that uh, with a family is that if if you uh, if a one of the family members moves to Christianity, they see it. Don't they see it kind of as a rejection of them, um, and they they kind of now you have opposition within your own family, right? Yes, and friends and community. Uh, you know, the book of Hebrews was written to believing Jews who were struggling with being ostracized by the non-believing Jews of the time. Yeah. That continues today. So the pressure is enormous, enormous. It's like, is, you know, what is the difference? And, you know, I've had uh, arguments with my uh, family members of my own about, you know, I'm not Jewish because I accept Christ, but they are Jewish. And I, and I believe every word of the Old Testament. I believe every word of the Torah but they are Jewish because they don't accept Christ, even though they don't believe any of the, uh, of the law. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. And I know you've, uh, you've, you've been uh, willing and able to witness to your family. How has that been received? And uh, I think you've had some that accept it and others that, that are still, you know, kind of rejecting you a little bit. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's exactly as you said, I, I told my story to my dad years after I became a believer. It was a secret. I didn't know how to share. And then, you know, because the salt and light pressure overwhelmed me. And I was able to share my life with him. And he he took it as a moment of sharing, which is the way I, I did it. And he didn't, he didn't receive it as something to consider, which I didn't mm. say to him, but I gave him a, a Tanakh. I highlighted the scriptures all through that pointed to the power of prophecy um, including even in the Torah, but all through it. And, uh, you know, but it was a wonderful moment. It wasn't until he was on his deathbed and uh, he was pretty much out of it and knowing that, you know, hearing, uh, you know, is so important, even on your deathbed, that I was able to speak directly to him mm, and, uh, and, and tell him he had the freedom. There's nobody judging him now. He had the freedom to speak directly to the creator of the universe and who it was and all of that. So that was very freeing for me because it, it, I know I gave him time to hear me. And, he, and I think my dad respected me enough, uh, but I think he was completely captive of the community, of, uh, you know, who he was in the synagogue. He'd been the president of that synagogue for many, many years. His brother was a well-known rabbi in Milwaukee. I think it was just overwhelming for him. That was a great experience. I was able to share with one of my other sisters and have her open and come to church with me. Another sister challenges me, as I described earlier, and then there's a third sister who just doesn't want to talk about it. <laughs> it's been a lot. It was that way with a lot of my friends from you know grade school on, because since it was such a Jewish school, I've reconnected with some of them with some success, and uh, one who now has spent the last 30 years in Israel that I'll probably talk about in a little bit. And others who were like, eh, I don't know, but I'm bolder now. Yeah, I'm old, I'm older and bolder. Yeah, yeah, that's neat. Um, well, it's been a joy to uh, you know get to know you, Denny, and uh, understand that you have great insight and in, in understanding about Israel, and you've certainly, like you say, you have connections there, and you've got a lot of input to it. So uh, we'd like to talk. Uh, Kathy and I have been sharing at our End Times uh, Fridays. Um, a lot about the Hamas, what we call the Hamas war, uh, the dynamics of what's going on over there, uh, the impact it's having in terms of what's happening in Israel, the uh, uh, 
persecution that is happening, interesting in places like America against Jews, mm-hmm. uh, which is all to me, it's very strange, you know, as to why they even go there. But uh, let's start with um, as you think of the Hamas war that started, you know, in October. What what is your understanding of what's actually going on over there? You know, what happened, what is happening, and uh, what's the implications of what, what's happening in uh, this, what we call the Hamas war? So I think of that, and, it's, and, and I, you know, I've thought a lot about it. So these, these may be thoughts that have matured over the last few months. I think of that a lot the, the way I think about the, what's going on in the, on American campuses. There is a, um, I remember as a kid in Sunday school, that you know, each week we'd bring I don't know ten cents, twenty five cents, and we it was called sadaka, which is the, the you know the Hebrew word for for charity. And you'd put something in a little bin, they'd collect it up. But for many many years, when I was very young, it was to buy to contribute to a tree in Israel. And I always thought it was silly as a kid. There's trees everywhere. Why? How many more trees do you need? <laughs> it didn't occur to me that it was a desert. There was nothing in Israel. I, I I've seen hmm. pictures now of of uh, Israel in 1947, and it looks, and there is nothing there. It is just, it is stark desert nothing hmm. uh, in the area that's now, this is pictures of Tel Aviv, right? And um, so, and that's what Gaza looked like. Gaza still hmm. looks like that. Israel is lush. It's like Singapore in downtown Tel Aviv. It's a center for high technology. It's a, you know, it's, and so I think this, the reality of what Jews were able or, or were called or were uh, um, gifted to be able to do in Israel versus what was possible to be done in Gaza but not done is the same thing that I think happens when in the academic setting, in college, when people make judgments about and they look across the room and they see a Jewish family that is prospering maybe worked a lot harder to even get into college. None of that matters, but it's like there's this decision. They've got something, and they must have gotten it unfairly, and I don't have it, and so I hate mm. it. Mm. Now, that's, that's what that's what goes to my mind. Now, I know it goes way back further than that, but if you even think back you know, to biblical times, it, there was a lot of jealousy, you know, and, and a lot of it's even described you know, in, you know, between Jacob and Esau, between Ishmael and Isaac. These are these, these these things start with you got something I didn't get and it and you mm-hmm. must get it unfairly. And I feel like that's almost built into the like the either the DNA of Jews, especially in America, because that's the ones I know, or it's just it's a consequence of a thousands of years of r- reacting to captivity, exile, and persecution. And it makes you into a person who says, I'm going to rise above the norm, and even if even if the judgment on the other side is that I, I received it unfairly, I don't know. Yeah. It's, so, the, so as you're as you're trying to explain that um, this this essence of because you're Jewish, um, I'm attributing anything that you're enjoying as you did it in a way that was unfair to the rest of us, and you manipulated it because you're self in other, in other words you're self-centered and you're and you're doing it unfairly and because of that I, even without even asking you about how this all happened i just make an assumption that it's wrong and i'm against you yeah yeah 
absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's funny as as it's one of the reasons why you don't see this between um, born again Christians and Jews, because there's a there's a there there you have an understanding of Christ Mm -hmm. and that there was a purpose to the Jews of the time for Christ to suffer and die so that there would be um, salvation opportunities for everyone, for everyone. But the role was, you know, Jews don't like to face this. They don't want to face this. But there was a role for Jews that Jews had to play in that. And that, of course, is echoed as kids. I was called a Christ killer by all the Catholics across. It was like nobody knew what that meant. But that you grow up believing that somehow you're a, you know, you did, you or your, your, um, your, your ancestors did something horrible. And that's the reason for the, for the hate. But it's yeah. funny that hate comes from people who don't even really believe in Christ, not as a, not as a, not as a Bible believing uh, person does. Yeah. So as we, as we look at that, uh, as the country of Israel, um, yeah. then part of it, what you're saying, which, you know, kind of gives me a little bit more clarity about the reason for it because it's hard for me to fathom it is that they're saying well because you Israel do not allow a two-state country unfairly you have repressed the Palestinians who would like to rule as well and why aren't you separating yourself into two separate states so they can have theirs and so it must be unfair what you're doing um, and I'm, I'm persecu- even though I don't even understand it, even with, and we'll talk more about this, is Hamas is the one that originated the war <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. and attacked them to a, a very severe level. And, if, and I was, uh, Kathy and I were talking about, if that happened, you know, let's say me in Denver, Colorado, <laughs> we, would, we would want our government to go after them and say, mm-hmm. end that. I, that's, that's complete. And they started it. We didn't start it. But it's all confused. You know, what, what, help us understand all that. How has this gotten so confused? And, and what is their perspective on uh, Israel and the Palestinians there and the, uh, the uh, Muslims? Well, I, I think, you know, the, the, the people who live in that area are not like the people that live in other countries around there. And the, the Gaza folks are not, they can't cross the border into Egypt, they can't mm-hmm. cross the border into Israel, and they can't do either for exactly the same reasons. They have they are they are the result of multi generations of um, uh, of trained in hate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you would see if this was anywhere else in the world, you'd see countries all over the world offering to take refugees from this war. It happens everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, look at what's happening in Ukraine. All the whole uh, eastern block of 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 Europe is taking in refugee has been taking refugees from Ukraine. And uh, and you see it in other wars, you know, during even when I was young, during the Vietnam War, all the adjacent countries took in refugees who were who were trying to escape uh, Vietnam. Um, but it doesn't happen here because because everyone recognizes that what you've got is a terrible problem with the inhabitants. It's not that they are evil. They are just the result of trained in evil for reasons I, I don't know that are easy to explain. It might very well be that this is part of a you know part of god and the and the devil's plan to to create a point of uh, of worldwide you know attention but it's not like this these are the muslims 
And it's not like the Israelis weren't also the Palestinians. They were before Israel was created. Everyone in that region was either part of, you know, Jordan or the, the, uh, the undesignated Palestinian area or some of the other countries. And when the boundaries of Israel created, they encroached on lots of different places. But they were agreed to by all of the, you know, the, the major players of World War II in response to the Holocaust. So, you know, it's like all that history is lost, too. And what you've got is a festering on one side, a festering group of people who don't who don't build kibbutzes, don't plant trees, don't figure out how to irrigate, don't figure out how to house millions of people. And on the other side, all those things happen. You know, as a kid, I was encouraged by my parents. I get this. My parents are not they don't believe in God. They didn't believe in God, but they they wanted me to spend a summer in Israel on a kibbutz. All of my friends were pressured to do that by their parents. So there was a nationalism that was associated with building that country up and making itself sufficient. Today, I don't know if they would any would do that, but there was a great worldwide desire to allow Israel to become self-sufficient. That didn't happen with mm -hmm. Gaza. Um, and I guess... We could ask, well, why not? I think the thinking today, when I talk to those that are in Tel Aviv, their belief is that at the end of this war, there will be a there will be an effort like that, a worldwide effort by friendly Arab states, mostly the United States, some European countries, to create that worldwide effort to do all the same things in that Gaza area that were done in Israel to create a thriving a self-sufficient community, and then try and retrain the inhabitants, which will be very, very difficult. You know, when Israel was created, there wasn't a, the people that were there weren't full of hate. Right. They were just trying, they, they, you know, they were trying to serve, to, they were the, they were the survivors of their families mm -hmm. from worldwide, um, you know, genocide. Right. Yeah. And let me ask you a question about uh, Gaza. So, um, it's being portrayed as there's military leaders and they're promoting the attack on Israel and killing Israelis uh, and have weapons and have, you know, missiles and have, you know, tunnels and all this stuff that they're working on. Um, but there's they describe there's a million plus civilians who live there. And you and you just said something interesting to me that I didn't realize. And that is they. <laughs> They can't go anywhere. They can't go anywhere uh, right. because they're they're identified as terrorists. What do what do those people, what we call civilians, what do they think? And what's their what would be if we said to them, "Hey, what's your position on this war? Your leaders killed a bunch of people, and because of it, they're coming back after you." What would be their thought about that? What what do they think about uh, terrorism and their leaders? And are they separate? Are they really all part of the same thing. Well, I was with a um, I was with a, a friend that I went to kindergarten with, knew all through high school, and, and as I told you, he's been in Israel for over thirty years. He's one of the founders of the Lone Soldier movement there, which um, equips people that come from other countries to go uh, become part of the ADF and fight for Israel. He's very, very close to all this. He lives in Tel Aviv. Um, just across from one of the hospitals where these where the injured come in and he watches them fly in and out he sees missiles come what he told me when i asked this very same question what he told me is practically speaking there is no distinction mm. between the two you just talked about and he said it's sad he said yes there are those who have made it their purpose to create this point of abrasion 
but it's two generations old. They've influenced schools. Every kid in school is grown up with nothing, absolutely nothing. And their, their entire worldview is kill the Jews. Mm. And, they, and so they're victims of this. And so they may not be active, but, but in order to say, well, to, to, to put two groups up, here's the ones that actively are sponsoring terrorism. And here's those that, that are rooting them on because they don't know any better. They don't know even know the reason. All they know is you got to kill those guys. Mm-hmm. So the, that's the problem. This isn't about, you know, if you get 100,000 of the leaders and deal with them, this is going to change. His point of view is you've got two and a half million people who have been, who've spent their entire lives wanting to die uh, killing, uh, killing Jews. Oh, boy. And whether they buy it deeply, like I, you know, I came to a, a belief, I brought up Jewish, I told you, you know, I get to a place and say, I don't buy this. But the fact is, most of them do buy it. Because mm. it's all they know. Yeah. And so this is to be repro, it's a terrible term, you know, but they, it's almost like there has to be some effort from people they trust. And that's why he said it's so important that um, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and Dubai and the very, and the, the much more uh, intellectually, uh, you know, sophisticated Arab countries have to have a part in this, uh, and they've got to build new centers of, of education, and they've got to retrain these people on on the truth. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. So what you're describing, uh, boy, this has huge implication for then how we view what Israel is going to do and what what they want to do next, because it's been portrayed as if the civilians are just kind of innocent, get caught up in this war that has been promoted by a few leaders. But really what you're saying is, no, it's, it's the entire country um, that is believing all this. And that does have big implication for, for uh, Israel and the Jews. So uh, we're going to you know, stop here, but we'll pick this up next time. So everybody join in again next week. And we're going to pursue this further because you're really, Denny, giving great insight here. And the question that I want to ask you is then, how is Israel dealing with this? What What is the ultimate outcome of this? And how is this going to play in the whole Middle East dynamic? So, uh, Denny, thank you so much. Uh, it's great. Wow, just great perspective on it. And uh, Kathy and I knew that, that you would bring it, and that's why we wanted you to come on. So we're, Yeah, just it's fascinating to hear it from your point of view yeah. and just gives us so much more insight to what's really going on in yeah. the hearts and minds of people, right? Yeah. Heavenly Father, we pray for uh, uh, Denny and, and Allie and, and then for their understanding of this, the connection to it, and giving us the ability to understand it further because it helps us uh, give perspective and start to watch for what's next. And so we pray that we'll really get into that next. And thank you for uh, bringing Denny to us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us, everyone. If you have questions about today's podcast, send it in to us at questions at abideministries.com. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Yep. We'll see you then. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Come and See, your podcast for truth in a world of chaos. Brought to you by All for Jesus Living Waters Ministry. Send us your questions and comments and tune in tomorrow for more answers to your personal questions about living life in God's truth. Remember, God's will is best and none better. His truth brings peace in this world of chaos.